With that said, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Colossians chapter 3 to the passage that was just read for us a moment ago. If you were with us last week, you know we started a new series titled Gospel Saturated. And the reason we started this series titled Gospel Saturated is because we are a church that desires to see lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships. But if we're going to see lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships, we kind of got to square up on what it means to live a gospel-saturated life. What does it mean for you and me to be gospel-saturated in our relationship with God and in our relationship with each other and our relationship with this city in which we live in? And so we began to kind of lay a foundation last week about what it means to uh, kickstart a gospel-saturated life. And so we looked at the first four verses of Colossians chapter 3, and, and there Paul just really kind of zeroes in on uh, the essence of Christianity. And he makes this powerful statement right at the beginning of the chapter, so if you have been raised with Christ, in other words, if you are a Christian, if you are someone who've, who's taken the gospel into your life, you have been spiritually resurrected with Christ. Now notice at the beginning of the chapter, he does not say, if you believe Jesus is alive. He doesn't say if you believe Jesus is alive, then everything else would be true of you. He says, if you yourself have been raised with Christ, meaning if you have been spiritually identified with the reality of Christ crucified and risen, meaning have you taken the reality of the gospel into your soul and into your life, the Christian life isn't simply about assenting to the reality of the resurrection. It's about consenting to the reality of the resurrection. It's believing it for you and that it matters to you in a life-changing, soul-resurrecting sort of way. It's our union with Christ. And so he says, if you have been raised with Christ, this, these things will be true of you. You are to seek the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. That is to live heaven down, not earth up. Verse 3, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. These are some remarkable realities for those who are, who've taken the gospel in. That you've identified with Christ in this sort of way. That's where the gospel-saturated life begins. That's where it starts. But that's not where it stops, which is why Paul keeps writing, Right? And he moves from verse 4 into verse 5, and you see Paul kind of shifting gears and by using a kind of connecting word or a logic word or a linking word, and it's the word therefore. And essentially what he's getting after there, he's saying if you are someone who's taken the gospel in, then it's now time for you to think the gospel through. That's the rhythm of the gospel-saturated life. You take the gospel in, then you begin to think it through. How does the gospel affect every area of our lives? And so he moves from verse 4 into verse 5 saying, if you have been raised with Christ, you are a follower of Jesus. You've taken the gospel in. Therefore, there are some things that you want to consider. There are some things that you need to think through about the way you go about your days in this world. And so it's a connecting word. It's a word of logic. It's a word telling us, look, the Christian faith is a thinking faith. Gospel belief is a thinking belief. We receive Christ, we identify with Jesus, and then we begin to think through what that means for us in practical, tangible, life-changing ways. So the Christian faith is a thinking faith, and this is what he's driving our attention to here in this passage, saying, if that's true of you, therefore, boom, and then he goes into some things, and he makes a statement there right after that. He says, therefore... As you think the gospel through, this means you, there are some things in you that need to be put to death. He says, therefore, put to death what belongs 
to your earthly nature. He says, as you've stepped into your relationship with Christ and as Christ has kind of stepped into your life and you've been spiritually resurrected with him, there's some things that you've carried into the relationship that you have to think through and you have to discover uh, what needs to die or what belongs to the cross or what needs to be crucified. It's not unlike the plot in The Lord of the Rings. The entire plot in The Lord of the Rings centers around this powerful ring, this powerful ring that was birthed out of Mordor, this evil, dark place and Mordor was threatening Middle Earth. It was threatening the, the flourishing life that was occurring in Middle Earth and, and then this ring was discovered and every time somebody put on this ring what happened? It connected them with the power of Mordor. It connected them with the, the evil of Mordor. This is why when you're watching the movie and Frodo slips the ring on everything kind of gets weird and turns into this shadow world and he's, the eye of Mordor starts seeing him. He starts seeing it and everything kind of gets really funky. Well What's happening there is that he's put on a ring that belongs to a world that he's not a part of. And so the whole plot of the story is for Frodo, and he discovers this, and he would say so much to Gandalf that that ring has to be destroyed. And it has to be destroyed by taking the ring to Mount, uh, Mount Mordor and casting it into the fires there, let it destroying the ring in the place that the ring came from. And this is the idea that we're getting after here in verse 5. Put to death that which is earthly in you. Take off the things that, that aren't a part of your new life in Christ. Stuff that is still tach, attached to and tied to this earthly world and this earthly existence. Stuff that, are, that is temporary. Stuff that isn't God honoring. Those are the things that we have to put off and we have to destroy. We have to put to death. And so the rhythm of the Christian life is, is learning to think this way and learning to think this through so that we might grow by putting to death what belongs to our earthly nature. So as we begin to think about what it means to think the gospel through, a couple of questions that we can always ask ourselves as we're learning to do this, as we're learning to uh, live out our faith and grow as men and women who's living gospel-saturated lives, you can ask yourself the simple question, well, is there anything in my life that belongs on the cross of Christ. And then you begin to ask yourself, is there anything in my life that belongs or that kind of comes out of the tomb of Christ? That is what should have died with Jesus and what should be brought to life because of Jesus. And you begin to ask those questions and you begin to think through different aspects of your life according to those categories and that will help you discern what types of things need to die and what types of things need to be resurrected or need to, need to be put on in your, in your soul. And so this is what Paul is essentially doing here in verse 5. He's telling the church, I want you to think the gospel through. You're going to do this by putting to death what belongs to your earthly nature. But then he helps us do that by taking that reality and applying it to a couple of areas in our lives. And when he's talking about these things, we would refer to as sin and areas of disobedience in our lives. He's he gets very specific, and I think that's key for us because when we talk about putting things to death in our lives that, or putting stuff on the cross where it belongs, and sometimes when we talk about sin, we talk about sin too generically, and we talk about sin so generically that our salvation doesn't really mean anything because we're not thinking through what it is precisely and specifically and particularly that Jesus rescued us from, that Jesus uh, redeemed us from and that Jesus wants to change about the lives that we're living before we met Jesus. But here in this passage, Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't let us think generically about sin. He says, I want you to think specifically about sin. And, and basically, he targets two areas of our lives 
One area is referred to our sexual lives, and you're going to see that in verse 5 and and following. But then later on, there's another list beginning in verse 8 where he's dealing more with our social lives. So you have our sexual lives and our social lives are, are targeted by Paul in this passage. And he's wanting us to think the gospel through in terms of how does the gospel relate to these very important parts of the lives that we're living in the world that is now. And so let's think about our sexual lives as it relates to what's being said here. Regarding our sexual lives, he says a few things in verse 5. He says, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. And then he lists out five things. He says, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed or covetousness, which is idolatry. And I know this is one of those passages that oftentimes uh, you kind of read. You know, there's several passages in the Bible that deal with uh, sex and sexuality. And and it seems as though a lot of those passages take a negative tone all the time. And so a lot of times it raises questions in our minds. Well, is Paul just a prude, right? Why does he always talk about sex in negative terms? And and we kind of get this impression in the church that we can't talk about this unless we talk about it negatively as some pollutant that is uh, bad in every situation or in every context, this, that, and the other. And if your mind's tempted to go there, I just want to encourage you with with a bird's eye view of what the Bible teaches about sex. Understand when God created everything and he created man and woman in his image and he placed them in the garden of eden he he himself imagined and he himself dreamt up sex and he gifted sex to adam and eve and this gift of sex was to contribute to their human flourishing it was going to allow them to multiply to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth and it was going to allow them to enjoy one another intimately It was a good gift from God giving to the people that he created in his image. And this good gift was to serve the flourishing of the Imago Dei all throughout the earth. That was how God set it up. That was God's design. That was God's intention. But you know the story of the Bible and eventually things changed. Genesis chapter 3, sin entered the world. Adam and Eve rebelled against God and judgment came and God kicked them out of Eden. They were no longer allowed to live in Eden. They were exiled from Eden. And once they left Eden, everything began to change. And this good gift from God started malfunctioning in the hearts of sinful men and women. It started taking on a form or many forms that God never intended and God did not design for our flourishing. And so this good gift kind of got twisted in the heart of fallen humanity. It's not unlike when I give my two-year-old daughter, Adeline, paint. And I give her paint, and I set up a spot in the house for her to enjoy that gift. I put, put a little context in the house, a little area where that paint can be used and that paint can be enjoyed. And I'll set her down at a table kind of in the corner of our kitchen, and, and I'll say, have at it. It's all yours. And while she's over there where she's supposed to be, kind of where what I set up for her to use the paint, and what she does in that moment is beautiful. But what happens when she takes that paint out of the context and out of the area that I had designated for that purpose and she brings the paint everywhere else in the house, it's no longer beautiful. Instead of being a thing of beauty, it becomes something quite messy. Well, this is essentially what we've done with the gift of sex. We have the gift that God has given designed to contribute to human flourishing in the particular context that is the security and the intimacy of a marital relationship. 
and is now malfunctioning outside of that context and is creating a mess in the world. It's creating a mess that we can see just about everywhere, right? It's not hard to see this. It's not hard to see the rationale behind something like the Me Too movement is needed. Why is that needed? Well, it's needed because this good gift from God is malfunctioning in the hearts of sinners like you and me. And Paul's aware of it. And so when he talks to the church in Colossae, and when this passage is put before the church today, it's, he's wanting us to think through the implications between the gospel and our sexual lives. And so to help do that, he, he lists out five words, five specific words. And it's an interesting line of reasoning and logic that you see there in verse 5. These five words that kind of move from sexual activity to motivation. And he's saying, I want you to think about this well. I want you to think about this thoroughly. I want you to think about this in a uh, specific layered kind of way. So he doesn't start with the motivation for why sexual immorality happens in the world. He starts with the act and then he works to the motivation. It's kind of brilliant, right? Because that's what the gospel does. See, the gospel is not interested in just changing a person's external behavior a person's activities, the gospel's interested in targeting the heart. And so the gospel never stops on the surface of things. The gospel always digs deep into the heart of our nature so that that, so that the core of who we are can begin to change. This is what you see Paul doing in verse 5 as he's pulling back layer after layer after layer to get to the core or the heart of this issue. And so he starts with the act there, using the word sexual immorality. Now, the word translated sexual immorality is the word porneia, and it's a word from which we get our English term pornography. And when you hear that word, it's not just talking about things you look up online or things that you see in, on a video or anything or something like that. It's kind of a junk drawer term from the first century referring to any type of sexual activity outside of the boundaries or outside of the context of God's design and of God's intention. And so he starts there with this big um, word, sexual immorality, referring to this type of activity. But then he moves to a word called impurity. And this is when he pulls back the first layer. So he's not just dealing with the act of sexual immorality. He starts moving internally. He starts getting into the mind of his readers or to the mind of humanity. So as we're referring to impurity, that is these lustful thoughts and these lustful intentions that well up out of the human heart and it's not unlike what Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Listen to what Jesus says there. He says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. That is, don't engage in that act of sexual immorality. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Because he's not worried about externalities. He's getting to the heart of the matter. So he goes one step further. And he says in that verse, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully and has already, commit, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's the idea. That's the movement that Paul is making in verse 5. Sexual immorality, then moving into impurity, and then from there going to lust. Getting after these uncontrollable passions and desires. And then from lust, he moves to evil desires. Some of your translations may have inordinate desires or exaggerated desires, something along those lines. Now, the word translated evil desires, it's a Greek word that's kind of a geeky word. That's why I like it. But it's a phenomenal word giving us insight into how this can go haywire in our lives. The word translated evil desires there is, 
is this combination of one word with a prefix that's been kind of created by Paul. It's not really a word that shows up many places outside of the New Testament. It's the word themia, which refers to um, desires. And, and then on front of that word, he puts a little prefix called epi. And epi is where we get our English, from, uh, English term epic from. And so what he's describing there aren't inherently evil desires. What he's describing there are desires gone haywire, desires that have taken on an epic form in our lives. These are epic desires. These are life-shaping shaping desires. These are identity-forming desires. These are good desires that have been exaggerated in our lives, and they're looming far too large in our story. And this is where we begin to see how uh, this matter of life in this world is one of the most common ways in which we try to make We try to live earth up rather than heaven down. We try to make heaven out of earth. It happens when this occurs. It happens when our epic desires for sexual activity begin to take over. And this good gift from God becomes exaggerated in our lives so much so that it starts shaping our identity. I mean, there's a reason why we live in a culture where people identify identify themselves according to their sexuality. Those are the types of questions that we are asked. Those are the types of conversations that are happening. Those are the types of protests that are being made in the world today. It's this epic desire. It's, it's a life-shaping, identity-forming desire for sexual activity. This is where Paul is taking us. But then he goes further. He says not only evil desire, but then he gets into a where he uses a word that might sound like he's changing subjects, but he's not. He's still tracing this one line of thinking, dealing, dealing with our sexual lives, and that's the word greed. Some of your translations, a better translation of that word would be covetous, covetousness. And the idea there is that covetousness is this, this greedy desire to always want more and more and more. And in this context, it refers to something like sexual greed. It refers to something like a ruthless, insatiable desire that goes unrestrained. And usually what happens when it goes unrestrained is that people in power are able to go after this in sexually greedy kinds of ways. The best illustration, I think, of this dynamic in the world today is human trafficking. Human trafficking is an example of sexual greed. Human trafficking is an example of people of power, people of means, being able to either kidnap, oppress, pay for sexual services from people who aren't willing and who, are not, um, who aren't, do not want to be in there. It's, it's an example of covetousness, sexual greed kind of blowing up in the heart of humanity. And so do you see how he's kind of peeling back layer after layer after layer? Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, covetousness. And then he comes to the end and he uses a word that kind of summarizes all of it. He uses the word idolatry. He says all of this is a form of idolatry. What Paul is saying here, and he's not the only one who says it in the Bible, What he is saying is that sexual immorality is a form of self-worship. Sexual immorality is always a manifestation of an idol in a person's heart. And all throughout the Bible, you see sexual immorality and idolatry linked together. They are thematically related, coupled together time and time and time again from the Old Testament through the New, showing how sexual immorality is a form of idolatry because it is always a form of self-worship. And here's how that happens. Sexual immorality becomes a form of idolatry when we want the pleasure without the responsibility. We want the pleasure of sexual gratification without the responsibility of living in an intimate, 
self-giving, other-oriented covenant commitment with another person. It happens when we want intimacy and, or pleasure without responsibility. And, and all of a sudden we begin to see how although God designed sex for our good, when it is malfunctioning in the hearts of people like us, it becomes something really bad. Because all of a sudden we begin to see how God designed sex not to be about base self-gratification. Sex isn't about base self-gratification. It's not just about natural desires and natural instincts. That's not how God desired it or intended it to be. Sex isn't a matter of base self-gratification. Sex is designed to be about beautiful self-donation. Not base self-gratification, beautiful self-donation or self-giving. He designed sex and he entrusted it into the covenant of marriage because that is the place where a man and a woman can love one another in this way, pursuing pleasure with responsibility, pursuing intimacy with commitment. And you begin to discover there how sex is about self-donation. Because why? Because when you engage in that activity, you're going to accept the responsibility of whatever might come out of that. So you have a kid, you're responsible for that kid. You're going to engage in that activity in a way that respects the responsibility of the relational commitment. So you're going to pursue the pleasure in the context of responsibility and commitment. This is God's design for it. And then you go one step further and you say, not only... Is it pleasure with responsibility? You also begin to consider how this self-donation, this self-giving, it reminds you that sex isn't simply for your satisfaction. Sex is for the satisfaction of your spouse. And so when you give yourself in that way, it's about donating yourself to the other, pursuing the pleasure of the other. In other words, sex is this remarkable dynamic where you become other-oriented in your relationship. You're not trying to get, you're trying to give. That's why marriage becomes the most beautiful context and the most beautiful place for this to happen. That's God's design. That's God's beauty. And anything outside of that needs to be put to death in our lives. And the way we begin to put this to death in our lives is by tracing it out, recognizing that it's more than an act. It's an idol. And we want to root out idols. We don't want to give ourselves to self-worship. We want to give ourselves to God's design in all things. The gospel insists that we do. This is what it means to think the gospel through. You begin to flesh it out on the heart level to see why something is called sin and why something is a threat to human flourishing. And you begin to pursue the alternative. You begin to pursue God's design, God's will, God's ways, and whatever it is you're thinking of. In this passage, it just happens to be dealing with our sexual lives. But then notice what else Paul says. He says, as he's moving from that, he kind of gets into verse 6 with some, with some motivation. He says, and he, it's kind of a sobering motivation. He says, because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. Now, I don't know how that language hits you. I don't know how that concept of God's wrath hits you. Some of us, uh, it doesn't hit us very well because we're not thinking the gospel through. Some of us draw the assumption that, well, if God is love, then he can't be a God of wrath, right? We think the two are incompatible. We think the two are contradictions. And so if we're not thinking the gospel through, we'll say, well, if God is a God of love, he can't be a God of wrath, but nothing is further from the truth. In fact, I would argue that if God is a God of love, he has to be a God of wrath. 
that love and wrath go hand in hand. Love and wrath go, are synchronized together. I'll give you an example. If you come over to my house and you grab my baseball glove, this baseball glove I've had since college. I love this glove. I'm attached sentimentally to this glove. I used it on through high school on into college. It's, it's one of my favorite items. And if you came over to my house and you found that glove and you took it out and you began to mistreat it, you began to beat it and abuse it, you began to try to rip it apart. Yeah, I'm going to be sad. I might even get a little mad, but I'm not going to, wrath isn't going to come out of me. I love the glove, but I don't love the glove, right? But you come over to my house and you do that to my kid. You come over to my house and you do that to my bride. The intensity of my love for my children and the intensity of my love for my bride is going to arouse wrath out of me so much so that I'm going to go to war against whatever is threatening the flourishing of my family in that moment. And when the Bible talks about this coming wrath of God, that's the promise. That's the explosion of God's love for his people saying there's coming a day when God's judgment is going to come to the world and he's going to eradicate every threat to the flourishing of his people. We want God to be wrathful. If he's not wrathful, he's not loving. And so you have this moment where Paul is reminding the church, look, put these things to death because the wrath of God is coming. Don't forget that Jesus died because those things were one time, were at once a part of you. And therefore, you put to death anything that rendered the death of Jesus necessary. You put to death anything in your life that warrants the wrath of God. In other words, anything that contradicts the flourishing of God's people in the world. And so he warns us with this dynamic, because the wrath of God is coming, because judgment is coming. Now there's another passage that kind of speaks to this dynamic of God's wrath that is coming. And, and I know it's not a popular topic to talk about. I know it's not one that, that really excites us in a worship gathering, especially coming out of Easter, right? Last week was Easter. That was fun. Resurrection. Now we're talking about wrath. How do you shift gears and move in this direction? Well, you go in that direction because the Bible goes in that direction, Right? Colossians 1 through 4 moves into verses 5 through 11. So this dynamic is something we have to think about. And if we're going to think the gospel through, we have to think the gospel through in its entirety. And that includes having some space in your mind, some space in your theology, some space in your discipleship for this coming day of judgment, this coming wrath of God. Now there's a moment in Romans chapter 2 where the same writer of Colossians takes up this same topic. And let me share these words with you. Romans 2, verses 4 through 5, Paul says, or do, you not or do you despise the riches of, of God's kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. What he's saying there is that we worship a very patient God. But sometimes we confuse his patience with negligence. We think because God hasn't judged the world and because his wrath isn't obvious everywhere we look, then he must not be wrathful and judgment must not be coming. And so we kind of lull to sleep, mistaking God's patience with negligence. But in Romans chapter 2, what do we read? We read that when we believe God is negligent and we remain unrepentant or we're not crucifying that which needs to be crucified, what's happening, we're storing up wrath for ourselves in the day of wrath. It's a sobering dynamic, but it reminds us that no human being in this world gets away with anything. 
No human being in this world will get away with anything as it relates to this reality of who God is. Instead, human beings are storing up everything when we remain unrepentant, we remain disobedient, we remain unsubmissive to the designs and the revelations of who God is and what God is about. It's kind of like living in a house with a gas leak, just a small gas leak. You're not going to notice it for a long time. But that gas is filling the house, and you're not going to notice it all until when you notice it, it's too late, right? When you notice it, it's going to be a little too late. That's essentially the rhythm of wrath that Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 2 and what he's getting after in Colossians chapter 2 and he's remi- or 3, and he's reminding those of us who've been resurrected with Jesus, those of us who are hidden with Christ in God, that don't forget that God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. So what that means is we are to illustrate another way so that people can expect, uh, escape that day. If your life looks the same as the lives of everyone around you and the gospel isn't making a difference in you, why should anyone turn from the lives that they're living right now that warrants the wrath of God? This is part of the reason why he's wanting us to think the gospel through and to consider, look, wrath is coming. Don't cooperate with anything that renders it necessary and renders it warranted. Don't don't go there. Therefore, our lives are to be different. Or to put it out there, our, our approach to sex should be different. Our approach to sex should be holy. Our approach to sex should be God-honoring. Our sexual ethics matter in the church because God's wrath is coming and we don't want to give everyone around us the impression that it's not. And so we pursue a different way of life. We pursue thinking the gospel through. This is what Paul's driving us to do. But then you keep reading in verse 6, because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient, and you once walked in these things when you were living in them, but not anymore. That was your old self. That was part of your earthly nature. But now, put away all the following, and then he shifts gears from verse 7 to verse 8 into our social lives, and he starts dealing with our relationships, because not only do we, deal, do we approach sex differently, we approach relationships differently. Our social lives change as a result of our resurrected state, of our relationship with Jesus, And so he begins to take up that topic, which might not be as uncomfortable for some of us in this room today, but you look at verse 8 and listen to what he says. He says, but now put away all the following, and then he lists out another list of five. The difference between this list and the previous list is that in this list, he's moving from motivation to acts instead of from acts to motivation. He's kind of working from a different direction. And so he moves from anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. These are all things that threaten flourishing, the flourishing of God's people. These are things that threaten our social lives, and they render our social lives uh, incompatible with the life that we've been called to and resurrected to live because of the gospel. And so you think about these words and what some of them mean. The first word there is anger, and Understand that that word anger, it's not referring to that just knee-jerk emotion that comes out of us sometimes. Anger is not always bad. In many ways, it's, in a lot of cases, it's actually a good emotion to have, and it's a good emotion to, to drive somebody. The problem with anger, as this word is translated, is that this word anger refers to resentment. It's an anger that might have swelled up within you, and you're not letting it go. So it becomes something like resentful Bitter, uh, resentful bitterness, and you're just kind of harboring this anger, that's when it begins to malfunction. And this good emotion that can stir up good activities in our lives becomes something undesirable. It becomes something harmful. 
And so that's where he starts. He starts with that motivation, this emotion of anger that's being harbored, that's being held on to, that, that's being clung to. And then he says, when you do that, eventually that's going to give birth to wrath. And wrath is this word that's getting after this, this uh, outburst of anger that just isn't healthy, where people begin to lose their composure. Wrath is what happens when you go crazy-eyed in your life, and your eyeballs start sticking out of your head a little further than they're naturally supposed to do, and they even start wiggling a little bit, and, and you're wondering what's happening. Well, that's wrath that you're seeing there. This is what goes down in road rage, right? Irrational anger that's been harbored, and it's blowing up on the, on the road. But then he goes from when you move from anger to wrath, and eventually you find yourself slandering. You start lashing out at other people's reputation. And at that point in time, maybe it's not so much that you're, you have the courage to do it to somebody's face. You're just doing it behind their back. And you start slandering a person's reputation. You start tearing down their character by the words that you're using. And the more you do that, eventually it will swell up. It will mushroom up. And eventually filthy language will start coming out of your mouth. And that imagery of filthy language, that's not just talking about, you know, saying curse words. That's a word that's referring to abusive speech. It's harmful speech. It's, I'm going to use the words that are coming out of my mouth to tear you down. It's abusive speech that, has, that does not contribute to human flourishing in the church or in the world that God created. And so he's saying those are the types of things you've got to put off, you've got to do away with. In fact, he goes on in verse 9 to tell us why. He goes on in verse 9, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices. This is not who you are anymore. You are a new creation in Christ. You have a new identity. Don't forget that. And then he goes on. You have also put on the new self. I love this line. You are right now being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. Don't you love that? You are being renewed right now where? In knowledge because you're thinking the gospel through. And as you're thinking the gospel through, your life is changing and you are starting to look more like Jesus. Now that doesn't mean that your physical features are changing so that you're starting to look more Jewish. What that means is, what that means is your, your virtues are changing. Your morals are changing. Your, your capacity for, of moral fiber and kingdom living, the heaven down, that is growing within you because your character is changing. It's being renewed in you. Why? Because you're thinking the gospel through. You're not dealing with sin on a superficial external level. You're dealing with sin at the heart level, and you're wrapping yourself up in your identity in Jesus. It's a powerful picture there, isn't it? You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. Now, perhaps the most remarkable picture of this in all of the New Testament is found in John chapter 11. John chapter 11, you have a story of a guy named Lazarus. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus, and although he was a friend of Jesus, he still died. And when word reached Jesus that Lazarus was dying, people wanted Jesus to come quickly and to prevent him from dying, but Jesus didn't. Jesus let his friend die because he was setting up a moment for him to communicate these realities to everybody there and to everybody here. And so he eventually showed up at Lazarus' grave. He steps up to the tomb, and what happens in the story is Jesus says Lazarus' name. He says, Lazarus, come out. And in that moment, you get a picture of what goes down in the soul of every Christian. At some point in time, there's a moment where Jesus steps onto the tomb of your life, and he calls you by name, and he brings you back to life. He resurrects your soul. He causes your heart to come alive in his direction. That's what 
Lazarus was illustrating. But when Lazarus' name was called and he's resurrected, he's given new life, he doesn't come strutting out of the tomb. He kind of waddles out of the tomb, right? He doesn't come out of the tomb with his head held high, firing on all spiritual cylinders from that moment on. No, he's, he's waddling. He's kind of stumbling out of the tomb because he's still draped in his linen cloths, in his, in his burial clothes. And that's a lot like the Christian life too. When Jesus resurrects your life, it's all of a sudden you don't, you don't step out of your spiritual tomb with your head held high strutting around. No, you kind of waddle into this thing, don't you? You kind of stumble into this thing. There's still edges in your life that need to be curbed. There's still things in your life that need to be put to death. There's still work that needs to be done as you are being renewed in the knowledge of your creator. And so this is what's going down. Lazarus comes hobbling out of the tomb. And he still bears on his body the the image of his death. And then what does Jesus say? In John eleven forty four? 44, he looks at Lazarus. Oh, let me just read this whole verse to you. He says, the dead man, that is Lazarus, came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. And then get this, Jesus said to them, that is everybody surrounding him. He spoke to the community. He spoke to the society. He said, unwrap him and let him go. You see, when it comes to thinking the gospel through and learning to put things to death, how do you do that? You do that in the context of community. You do that by pressing into the new society that you were a part of who's approaching a new sexual ethic, who's approaching a new way to relationships and social interactions. You step into that community, and all of a sudden, the community begins to help us remove the linen cloths from our bodies to put things to death that needs to die and and to put on things that need to come alive within us, things that we'll talk about next week with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness, all these wonderful virtues that we put on. Where do you put them on at? You put them on in the context of community. And this is exactly where Paul goes next in verse 11. This is where he lands the plane, right? Verse 11. After laying all that out, thinking the gospel through, he then says, In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. He's saying you now belong to a new society. And this new society is going to help you think the gospel through so that together you can put things to death that need to die and together you can learn to put on what needs to be put on. It happens in the context of the church, this new community. And this is where I get the most excited when I think about the future of the Hallows Church. When I think about the type of community I'm praying for God to create within us as a faith family stretched all throughout this city, I'm, a, I'm praying for God to give us grace to take advantage of the opportunity we have to shine bright in this city, to shine bright in the midst of so much sexual dysfunction because we're embracing God's design and we're embracing God's sexual ethics. I'm praying for God to help us to shine bright in this city in the midst of so much division and discord, so much racism and bigotry, so much abusive speech and anger that is happening and running rampant throughout our city and throughout our country. I'm praying for God to make the Hallows Church a place that is different, 
a place where all of us together are stepping into our identity in Christ and he is becoming all and in all, all around us and all over us, that our church is being saturated by the gospel because we're taking it in all the time and we're thinking it through all the time and together we're working to get, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, believing that God is at work in us both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. This is the community, this is the faith family that I I pray that we would become and that the light of the gospel would shine bright in the midst of so much dysfunction and so much division. We have an opportunity to do something special. We have an opportunity to be something special. And I think that's what God has called us to be, right? When he says, hey, you've been raised, you've been raised with Christ. You're being renewed and the knowledge of, of your creator, you're being transformed in the image of Christ. This is who you are. Press into your relationships with each other so you can think these things through and so that you can later turn them out, which is what we're going to talk about next week. It's a remarkable thing to be a part of the church. The church is to be a society unlike any other society in the world. This community of faith, believe it or not, believe it or not, This community faith is to be utterly unique in this world. And I know that sounds kind of far-fetched at times because some of us are still wearing our linen cloths and we're still carrying around our bodies the, the images of our death and the images of our past life. But by grace, we press into relationships so we can take that stuff off and we can put new clothes on. So we can put off the old self and put on the new self and grow together in that direction. There's some fun days ahead for the Hallows Church as we try to do that together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to consider these realities? Would you help us to continue to think the gospel through and to see how the gospel gives shape to area, every area of our lives? I want to pray specifically for our sexual lives because that's what this passage presents to us today. I also want to think specifically about our social lives because that's what this passage presents to to us today. I pray that you would help us to think through how your gospel is changing these aspects of who we are and the way we're going about our days in this world. And would you give us grace to be a family of faith that shines bright in this city, that shines bright and that contributes to human flourishing because we're carrying out your concerns and we're carrying out your passions in the world that is. God, we love you and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.